You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Well, welcome to this podcast of the BJSM. I'm Babette Pluim, Deputy Editor of the British Journal of Sports Medicine, and I'm very excited to be here with Dr. Ben Kibler, Associate Professor and Medical Director of the Lexington Clinical Sports Medicine Center. Welcome, Ben. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Ben, it's a, it's a great honor and pleasure to have you on this podcast, and let me just uh, introduce you to our listeners. Um, you've played baseball in college. You are a very keen tennis player. You're a founding member and first president of the Society for Tennis Medicine and Science. Let me just first ask you a little bit about the Society for Tennis Medicine and Science. Why did you decide to, to found such a society? Well, it was interesting. Um, Per Renstrom and Bob Nerschel and Russ Warren and I were sitting down at, at dinner in New York City many years ago, and the reason we were there is because we were at the U.S. Open. We were interested in tennis, and we realized that there's not a forum for tennis scientists and doctors to get together and, and discuss the latest information or the latest knowledge about tennis. There's no organized means by which tennis medicine was um, formulated or discussed or even provided. So we decided that it would be a good idea to put this organization together. I was the youngest person there, and therefore they all decided I was the person to do it. (laughs) And so that's how it started. Well, and I think you've come a long way because in 2010, you received the Educational Merit Award from the International Tennis Hall of Fame for contribution to the education of tennis players, coaches, and sports medicine doctor as a long-standing member of the USTA Sports Science Committee and Sports Medicine Consultant to the WTA Tour and also the Professional Tennis Registry. Is that something you really like, working with uh, with tennis players and coaches alike? Yes, um, I've always been an active sportsman, and uh, I really enjoy being on the field, whether it's the baseball field, the tennis court, soccer pitch. Uh, so it's a lot of um, fun to take care of the athletes. Uh, I like to watch it. I like to play it. It's like the old busman's holiday. I really enjoy doing it. Yeah, I remember you beating me. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> you you have a you have a keen interest in the shoulder, and you have done a lot of research on the shoulder. Where does this interest come from, and what are you mainly interested in? Kind of evolved when I first got into sports medicine. Of course, it was mainly the knee and the knee arthroscopies, and and I was uh, you know. I'm, We've been around here long enough to remember when we didn't do shoulder arthroscopy, and so we we got into shoulder arthroscopy later than knee arthroscopy, and uh, it was an open field of uh, interest. There were not a whole lot of people involved in it because of my interest in baseball and tennis. The shoulder being the joint that's the most injured in those sports became very attractive, and then as we got more into involvement of the scapula and the kinetic chain, the shoulder was one of the key points in that little chain, so uh, we just started getting more and more involved in it. As we got involved in the injuries, the labral injuries, the instability, it became such a almost an endless pit. We we had no information. We kept on delving farther and farther in there, and we found that there was quite a complex amount of knowledge to be learned about the shoulder, so we just kept on going into it. Yeah, and and you organized a scapula summit in 2006 and one in 2009, and you've planned a third one in July 2012. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Why this interest in the scapula? 
Well, it was so funny. Once upon a time, I was uh, I had a patient could not understand why their shoulder was not working well. Uh, they had symptoms. If she was a swimmer, uh, we did all the tests, did all, and we couldn't couldn't make her better. One day, I was walking into my office, and she was coming into my office um, after her swimming practice, and I noticed that in her swimsuit, uh, she was walking in front of me. One of her shoulder blades was sticking outside the edge of her swimsuit. And this side was back where it's supposed to be, and I realized that there was something about the position in the scapula that was not right and was giving her her symptoms. So I went up to her, and I, I just actually put her scapula back inside her swimsuit, and all of a sudden her shoulder worked well. So I figured, well, there's something wrong with this scapula. So that's how we got interested in the scapula. That was back uh-huh. in the mid-'80s or so. And we accumulated some knowledge and, and met some people who were interested in that. And so uh, we decided to bring everybody together that were studying the scapula. At that time, there was only been about six or eight people in the entire world. So the first one was just uh, kind of getting together. The second one then uh, was to try to solidify this information and put it down in a controlled way. And then this third one, i uh, show you how far we've come in this. Now we're actually, the whole summit is on how do you treat this and what's the clinical implications of the scapula dyskinesis. And so we have... And now we have like 20 people who are coming to present their work on what are the, what the clinical implications of the scapula in swimming, in different sports, tennis, baseball, also uh, the scapula in each of the diseases, rotator cuffs, instability, labral pathology, AC joint separations, clavicle fractures. And this uh, will be put together as a work product, as a consensus paper uh, that will be put into the British Journal of Sports Medicine. So we're very happy to be progressing this far down the line. Yeah, that's wonderful and great news for uh, for our readers as well. So we look uh, we look forward to reading that. And also you, you mentioned different sports and um, you have done some very interesting research on the tennis surf and you talk about the surf as a weapon. Can you Can you explain the readers a little bit more about that, how about how you see that? Well, of course, in, in tennis, the serve is the only stroke in which you have control over the circumstances of hitting the ball. And every other stroke, you're on the move and responding mm-hmm. to somebody else. It is the uh, one of the most common strokes that you have. It generates the most force. Uh, it appears that the injury rate in the serve is higher than for most of the other strokes. So it's a very important we looked at the serve as a weapon. How many points can you, and does it confer an advantage onto the player? And we looked at professionals, and we looked at during the hard court season, so there was a lot of clay or a grass, which changes the importance of the serve. And we looked at both male and female professional tennis players, and we found that, indeed, the, the person who served had a won more than 50% of the points and more than 50% of the games. Um, however, it was different between males and females. Males won more first serve points, won more second serve points, and won more games uh, on their serve by statistically significantly uh, larger amount, uh, anywhere from 10 to 17% more. The first serve and second serve percentage between males and females was not that different. Um, it was not statistically significantly different. So there's something about the content of the serve that's either velocity, spin, or placement. We're looking into differences between males and females and how they generate the serve. 
Uh, and it appears that it may be due to some of the ways that males and females actually use their kinetic chains to generate the serve. In general, males bend their knees, rotate their hips, rotate their trunks, uh, and use their back leg to generate force and their motion more than females do. Females tend to not rotate their hips, do not bend their knees, and therefore do not use their kinetic chains to develop as much force. This generates more racket head speed at the ball impact. If you use your back leg, use what we call the push through, where you're pushing from the ground up. And it also means that you're going up and through the ball, therefore you can generate more spin. Uh, if you use a pull-through method, where you basically pull with your upper trunk, it's more of a linear motion, so you have less spin generation in terms of top spin, and you have a relatively uh, less racket head speed at the moment of ball impact. I want to ask you something about that, because you often talk about biomechanics and, and the kinetic chain. Do you think that's an important aspect of, of treating a patient, and do you think it's important for clinicians to understand the biomechanics of sports? In any sport, sport is, is what we call dynamic. There's always you know movement, there's always development of force, regulation of force, and the the way that the body is organized is that the different segments of the body, and each segment is like the bone and the joints on either end, uh, have to be coordinated in certain patterns to efficiently develop force uh, or to resist force or to control load at each of the joints. So the body works only one way. Now, it's very specific for a sport or a sporting activity in how that organization is, is worked out. It's all mechanics of, of how you do this. Now, in my mind, the best way to understand how a swimmer swims or how a tennis player hits the ball or how a runner runs or how a football player kicks the ball is to understand how the body organizes these segments so if I know the function, how, how the body does that, then when they come into me with an injury or you know some pain or something like that, they have a dysfunction. They can't use it normally, and therefore I can relate their dysfunction to what we should have as the normal function, and therefore we can evaluate them in terms of their injury. For example, with a shoulder injury. If they have a shoulder injury, then we know if they're a tennis player or a swimmer or a baseball player that there's probably going to be something along this entire kinetic chain or this organization of the segments that's not right. And so we look for, not only at the shoulder do we look for pathology there, but we look for weakness or inflexibility or muscle imbalance in other parts of the body. And then we can treat the entire uh, kinetic chain so that they will return to their normal function. Yeah, and that's and that's very interesting because in the Netherlands, Sports physicians, orthopedic surgeons, physiotherapists, they all talk about the Kipler Rehabilitation Program, and everyone knows what this means, even though you've never um, called a program that way. How, how would you define this program, and why, why do you think it has had such a massive impact um, here in Europe? How, how is your program different from other programs? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm very glad that it's had some effect. I'm glad that you all are using it. Uh, it is based on the kinetic chain. It's based on looking at the entire 
chain and looking at imbalances or inflexibilities in these areas that um, may be what we call culprits. We, we play the game called victims and culprits. The victims are where the, in, where the sportsman hurts. The culprits are what caused that hurt, and it can be multiple things. And so if you have this framework of looking at these injuries, then you can rehabilitate them. And, and, and if you look at the, the core as the engine for developing force and, and, and creating a stability so that the foot or the hand can be as mobile as possible, then you start with a core and then you work out. Scapula is a key point in this. It's the base for all shoulder activity, just like the pelvis is the base for all leg activity. And so if you have a knee injury or an ankle injury, if you if you really work on the, the pelvis, then you have a good base for your leg to work. If you have an arm or a shoulder elbow injury and you work on this, the scapula is the, is the stable base to um, to work off that. I, I, in our experience, the reason this works is because you actually work from the core out and the athlete realizes, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm doing better with this particular program and it doesn't hurt as bad. For example, instead of trying to do the rotator cuff exercises for your shoulder, a lot of times the rotator cuff's not the problem, it's the scapula. So they try to do the rotator cuff exercises and it hurt them. Well, they do their core and scapular exercises, it doesn't hurt and they progress, they get some strength in when they move their arm for the rotator cuff exercises. And, and as far as we can tell, our outcomes suggest that, that using this particular method uh, seems to get good outcomes as well. So we're just doing what, what the body normally does. We're just replicating that, which I think is what we ought to be doing. Yes, and you talk a lot about prevention and rehabilitation, yet you have performed more than 20,000 surgeries in your life. Um, but but sometimes you are seen as the orthopedic surgeon who talks about the other stuff. Do you think it helps you that you've done so many surgeries and also seen the, the athletes in the field? Well, I think, yes. The only thing surgery does is that it uh, changes the anatomy. It's foundational. I mean, if you've got something broken, <laughs> it probably doesn't need to be fixed. But surgery in and of itself does not make the the, the dysfunction functional. Uh, what makes the dysfunction functional is the flexibility, strength, uh, balance, the physiological and the biomechanical aspects of this thing that's wrong. And sometimes the body will figure out it by itself, but a lot of times it won't. My skill as a surgeon is only the first step of making this better rather than the last step or the only step in making it better. And so the only reason I'm a good surgeon, uh, I have a good reputation as a good surgeon, is because the rehabilitation and this this way of of getting them restored to function uh, works pretty well. Yeah. The good news to our um, listeners is that in April... You will speak at a shoulder conference in Rome organized by Dr. Giovanni Di Giacomo and that there will be other invited speakers such as uh, Professor Bruce Elliott, who is a biomechanist, Todd Ellenbecker, who is a physiotherapist, Professor Renstrom, who is an orthopedic surgeon. Um, so you'll probably combine the two. Can you give us a sneak preview of what you're going to talk about so we can see if we should book the, the flight to Rome? <laughs> uh, no, Dr. Di Giacomo uh, is, is one of the... Uh, guys who embraces this kinetic chain concept very, very well on the continent. And he and I have had many meetings. See, I've been over to Rome several times. This meeting is going to be very good. He's got some very good experts in the field. And we are going to, I'm going to be talking about the kinetic chains of baseball and tennis uh, and how they are similar and how they are different. 
and we're going to talk about what what the injuries are in the shoulder in tennis and baseball, how you clinically evaluate them. And then uh, Todd Ellenbeck and Kevin Welk are going to be talking about physical therapy uh, ideas. And then Bruce Elliott, of course, he's the best in the world at understanding all the tennis serve and how that applies to clinical evaluation. One of the most interesting things is the afternoon session. We're going to present cases, actual cases, uh, that uh, represent uh, injuries and how we evaluate them and how we treat them from this kinetic chain standpoint. I have a question that may be a little bit difficult to answer, but since you're comparing baseball and tennis, I would like to do that too. In baseball, there are guidelines for how many times a young player can throw to prevent elbow and shoulder injuries. Do you think similar guidelines would be possible for tennis players? And if so, what would your recommendation be to a tennis player? I think uh, that's that's the key point. If we're talking about prevention of injuries, uh, obviously we need to know um, what the exposure of the athlete is to the injury. And certainly in throwing sports, one of the major factors is the quantity of times that that arm goes through that overhead motion. They've done some very good research in youth baseball players. Anywhere from the age of 12 to 18, there are now very well-established guidelines for the number of pitches that beyond which you start worrying about the shoulder being injured. This is a model that is used uh, very uh, frequently in the United States to uh, be careful about young pitchers. Now, whether this goes for the older pitchers in the professional leagues, nobody knows for sure. In tennis, we do not have this, although, once again, it's a, it's a similar motion. And like I said, the, the serve and the overhead motion is where a lot of the injuries are. This is where the largest forces are generated. It's been calculated that the tennis serve and the baseball throw uh, are pretty close to having the same load on the shoulder. Now, the reason why the tennis serve doesn't probably uh, result in as many injuries is because you have to rack it um, to develop to take some of that load off of the shoulder. But still, uh, there probably is a limit to how many serves that should be hit. We do not have uh, that information yet, and uh, one of the things I'm trying to work with the USTA or with the um, WTA is to develop a method by which we can evaluate this. Now, that takes a lot of money and a lot of time to you have to sit there and count every. You can't rely on anybody except yourself to count the number of serves, which means we've got to mm-hmm. have some researchers actually go out in the field and watch the number of serves that are hit during a match. The other thing about tennis is in baseball, a lot of times you'll have a rest, a couple of rest days after you pitch where you don't pitch. Well, in tennis, they usually don't do that, so we have to factor that in. But uh, we are actively trying to develop a research program uh, to uh, measure the number of serves and then try to correlate that with injury. Uh, So if any of the listeners are interested in doing that, there's a great research project. That would be really great. So, uh, yeah, I hope you continue pushing that forward. So um, my final question would then be, What would be the one single thing that you would recommend to a player, a physiotherapist, and a doctor to prevent shoulder injuries in tennis? I think uh, the the single most important thing appears to be the uh, rotation of the shoulder, glenohumeral rotation. We know that if you have an alteration, a, a decrease in the glenohumeral internal rotation, of more than 18 degrees compared to the opposite side, or if you have a alteration in the total range of motion, internal rotation plus external rotation, 
of greater than five degrees from one side to the other, that this puts the shoulder in a mechanically inefficient, imprecise uh, rotation and creates a, a risk of injury. And this changes uh, from before the match to after the match by five or six degrees. So you want to watch and see, make sure that there's not going in the wrong direction, like it keeps on getting worse and worse and worse. So, and you need to measure this in the individual tennis player probably two or three times during the year because it, it can vary. So that's the first thing I'd worry about. Second is the position of the scapula. If it is in a protracted or tilted anteriorly direction, that once again has been associated uh, with presence of injury, both the shoulder and the elbow. Uh, internal rotation deficit has also been shown to be uh, associated with injury to the elbow. If you get the scapula in the right position and the shoulder in good rotation, you're, you're decreasing loads and risk at both the shoulder and the elbow in the throwing arm. And then the third is you've got to have the maximum power developed, and that is from the core, so you have to have good core strength. So those are the three uh, issues that appear to be uh, the most important in any overhead activity, whether it be tennis, baseball, or swimming. Well, thank you very much. That's very clear advice that we can start working on. Well, Ben, thank you very, very much for your time, and um, I hope you have a great time in Rome. Well, thank you very much, Baba. Thank you for all your efforts in sports medicine uh, throughout the years, and thank you for your friendship. We we go back a few years, so thank you very much. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.